Thank you, Amber. Uh, your practice is showing off. Uh, you're, you're finally getting able to play that thing with some skill. I just love the way she plays. And, and uh, I think my role in her life is to give her opportunity to be sanctified with patience at me calling attention to her, because I know that's just what you love, right? You'd have that, a screen in front of that piano if you could, but thank you. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church and be the first to welcome or welcome you to the new year. Happy New Year. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. Just a few announcements. Isaac, raise your hand for this is the guy to see to get into the True Church Conference. He can squeeze you in if you want to go. Um, I'd recommend it. If, if you want to get to know people because you're going to hang out with them a lot, and I hear that there's good food, drive down, but also great teaching and a good insight into Anchored and Truth and how we partner with them. Another announcement in the bulletin is that men's and ladies' Bible studies will both resume upon announcement. So ladies, if you were planning on going this week or next week, it's not happening. Um, so see Catherine for the dates. We have some... Bible reading fighter verses, little bookmarks that are in the back uh, by the top of the stairs. Uh, avail yourself of these. And I'm not sure how many of you were, that don't go to adult ministry training class, whatever we call it, um, also go to the Wednesday night Bible study, but I'll be leading that, and there's a handout for you. You guys have a whole pile of them. Um, it's, it's something to take home, and they'll be in the back also. So if you didn't get one in the Sunday school class over in the fellowship hall, I'd encourage you, if you go to Wednesday night, go, it's Zoom. Um, if you Zoom in on Wednesday night, have one of these handouts so you can uh, do some prep work with it, pre-work. Yeah, I'll be traveling, so thanks, Andy, for leading us on Wednesday. Uh, let me mention something, too. As Annie mentioned, these bookmarks for the fighter verses, did you, you mention that, did you? Yeah. Hey, I, I listen to your sermon. Yeah, I don't listen. Um, no, no comment. If you need more, we'll make more. So uh, where did you put these in the back somewhere? 
Okay. All right. Now, we really appreciate uh, Gail helping us with these. Um, each week, you're going to see uh, uh, that verse also in your bulletin, so you'll find it there as well. And so we use these verses to try to help children to hide God's word in their heart. And this is just another resource that we have for you to be able to do so. Uh, there, there is an app for those that are into technology you can use to download and have access to those verses. I changed it up a bit, and, and I call it a memory meditation verse because I don't want you to be overwhelmed by not being able to remember these in perfection. What I do with them is I'll read it, I'll think about it, and dwell on it. it it's good to have it in some other format so that you'll have it with you, so it's here and it's available. Uh, we've been working also just, by the way, to introduce this and some other items online that you can see, and I appreciate the uh, Kenimers for helping us to do that, but you're going to find on our Facebook site and Instagram as well, which we have, and we have, I guess it's called X now, um, we'll work that out as well to communicate various things and one of them you'll find I'll do a little brief introduction when we say brief two minutes that's pretty brief for me <laughs> they have me introduce these verses cold so that I don't take two hours uh, in any case uh, I'll introduce each verse to you online as well so that's another resource that you can have just a brief explanation of the verse it's, it's a great thing to hide God's word in your heart. This bookmark is there for you to put it, of course, in your Bible, and so if you're not sure what, uh, what verse we're on, you can find it there. Who knows, we might lose electricity, and, and you might need some other backup source for it, so it's good to have it in multiple ways to truly hide God's word in your heart. But today we're going to uh, begin here in just a moment with uh, communion to prepare your heart I'm going to give you a moment now and then I'll pray for us corporately Blake's going to come and lead I think we're going to do the first two uh, verses of the hymn in the seated form and it's going the hymn that we're on is 105 grace greater than our sin what a great concept to think and dwell in your heart on and so we'll let you sing that in a meditative way and then I'll call you forward here to receive both elements of communion. You don't need to be a member of a church, but you do need to be obedient to Christ in confession and baptism and have your sins confessed. So we'll give you a moment to do that now and, uh, and then receive communion. Both elements return to your seat and we'll have them together. All right, so let's go ahead now as we prepare our hearts to worship Christ Take a moment now to prepare your heart, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you praising your holy name for who you are and all that you do and that all that you have promised to do. As we gather together as your people, we 
confess our sin. <coughs> we recognize that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great privilege it is. I pray that we would not count that lightly. I pray that we would be in a continual state of confessing our sin and continually receiving the grace which you have provided, that grace that is greater than all our sin. What a great truth. No guilt, no guilt before you because of Christ, that unmerited favor which we have received. And so as we gather together as your people to worship your holy name, we do pray, Father, that you will speak to us each individually as we need to hear. I pray, Father, if there are any outside of the faith, it would come to faith in Jesus Christ even this day. I pray, Father, for anyone that might be discouraged in their faith. I pray they would find great encouragement to be among your people, collectively praising your name, and collectively remembering the goodness and the blessing who is Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray that you bless this day. May all that we do honor you. I pray that you would build each of us up in the most holy faith. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Let's take our hymn books and remain seated, as Pastor mentioned, and we're going to turn to number 105, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. We'll sing the first two verses. Think about every word that you sing here this morning as you contemplate the grace that we've been bestowed to us through Christ Jesus. 105, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Amen. Amen. 105. is 
greater than all our sin. Where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Romans 5.20. What incredible thought to think on even this day. And that's what I want to bring to your remembrance. Christ gave us this ordinance of the bread and the cup, and he did so, he said, to do this in remembrance of him. I'm going to ask Andy, if you will, come here and take these elements, if you will, and to bless them for the congregation as we remember Christ's grace. Father in heaven, I thank you that in your love, your mercy, your absolute sovereignty that you sent your son to die yes. for us, that your love was so immense. Would you please bring back to remembrance his broken body and his shed blood that washes away all our sins and makes us whole before you. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and start on this side, if you will, for those receiving communion, come up and receive both elements and return to your seat.
We have two elements, of course, the bread and the cup. This passage in Scripture is incredible from Romans to think, again, where trespasses increased, grace abounds more. Hence the hymn, grace that is greater than all our sin. Simple words, great truth particularly if you really understand what is being said, that God's grace, his unmerited favor granted to us in Christ Jesus, far exceeds your sin. In fact, where, where sins increased, grace is even more and greater. There's no sin that is greater than his grace. And for that, we praise him. We're called to remember Christ in aspects in which he merited that grace for us, first in his life as we receive this bread in remembrance of him. The second is to remember him, his grace in his death, as we receive this cup in remembrance of him. As our hymn writer wrote, this grace then is marvelous. And we'll give you an opportunity to sing that out as you stand and sing with us his marvelous grace. Let's all stand and turn to number 105 and we'll sing verse 3 joyfully. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Four forty six. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians fifteen. Four forty six.
one. All the way to the front of the our hymn book, number one. Praise to the Lord the Almighty. Praise, exalt, and glorify the King of Heaven. Daniel four thirty-seven. text for the new year. Psalms 1 and 2 is at page 448 in the Pew Bibles. Now, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme as much as has parallelism. Psalm 1 here has an A, B, C, B, A structure. It's like the, the bread of this sandwich uh, is a contrast between righteous, wicked, tree chaff. Like I, had a, I have a friend that made raunchy TV shows for uh, MTV, reality shows, and he was, he was also hiding his income from the government, but he told me that his lawyer ran off with all of it and lost $7 million in a day. It is like chaff that could blow away in the wind. But the centerpiece, the, the meat of the sandwich, is he will prosper in all that he does. Now, uh, Obviously, Psalm 2 is messianic, kiss the sun or else, but I wonder if Psalm 1 can be viewed in a messianic lens, that Christ is the ultimate 
blessed man. Hebrews 1.9 says about our Lord that you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, the Lord your God has anointed you with oil of gladness above your companions. Uh, but those uh, prosperity gospel people might have trouble seeing Jesus in Psalm 1 because the cross was uh, not, very, not a very blessed moment, you could say. Uh, but prosperity, scripturally, is about doing your job and fulfilling your purpose. That's why scripture talks about a weapon prospering or loincloth prospering when it does its job and fulfills its purpose. What Isaiah 53.10 says starts with, it was uh, the Lord's will to crush him and the grief and the soul's uh, guilt offering for sins. But the same verse says that he will prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Let's read. This is the word of the living God. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that our souls would take refuge in your Son, uh, that we would uh, tremble and Rejoice in the salvation that we have. And let this be uh, another year where we would want to meditate on your word. And let it be, a, let your word to us be a, uh, our heartbeat and our meditation that we could prosper. Pray for the families of our church. It would be tr uh, trees planted uh, in this city uh, of uh, righteousness and training up uh, our children uh, in uh, the way of the Lord. 
and help us to uh, joyfully uh, give today uh, out of uh, all of the blessings that you have given to us. This we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Please take your hymn books once more and stand with me and turn to number 448, 448, before the throne of God above. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, Hebrews 416, 448.
seated. Amen. What a beautiful hymn. Thank you, Blake, Amber, and Church. Great theology in that hymn, isn't it? I'm particularly thinking about Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We've been studying the great high priest in Hebrews, and we will return to Hebrews chapter 10, but not today. Today I wanted to continue in my series here on the state of the church. I didn't quite get to finish last week, and I may not necessarily finish this week. We'll just have to see how it works. But I assure you, we will return to Hebrews chapter 10 and pick up there soon. So be prepared for that. In the meantime, I just wanted to continue on what I began last week in thinking about this new year. Uh, this is the first Sunday of the new year. Last Sunday was the last Sunday of last year. And the emphasis really comes from a text, and we'll move from there, but just to root it, was in Matthew chapter 16. And what intrigued me most about for the church in general, but specifically here, our church, <coughs> to recognize this fundamental truth when Christ said, I will build the church. In fact, he would accomplish that and nothing could stop him. As it says, not even the very gates of hell. They're no match. I'll be expanding on this in a teaching series on Wednesdays to come. To get into a little bit more depth of what it means to be a biblical church. One in which Christ builds. It's the foundation, by the way, of which we started. It's, it was the basis from, for me as I came here initially to recognize that I wasn't going to build anything, restore anything, reform anything, but simply submit to Christ and allow him to do so. There were times in which, yes, I have to admit, somewhat discouraged, I wanted to see great fruit, great fruit of faith and faithful people. But Christ would need to do that, not me. And I recognize that you know, if I fulfill the responsibilities that he's given me, which is simply to be faithful to him, that he would accomplish what he desires. I didn't know if it would be a judgment on the community. But I'm glad to see great fruit in bringing people together who praise God, who want to serve God, who want to lead others to God and be a light to the nation. There are three churches, uh, or should I say, um, the in the book of Revelation, seven churches that, that are mentioned, and we talked about them briefly last time. Those seven churches that are mentioned in the first three chapters in Revelation are churches that are no longer in existence. It's always intrigued me a bit when I thought about it. You know, five of them had some issues, and the Lord said, because it's his church, he said, you need to repent, or I'm going to take away the, your lampstand. That is, you, you might look like a light to the nations, but in reality, you won't. 
You know, it's Christ's church, right? Two of them, he really was comforting and encouraging them. But in time, all of them are gone. Why? I really don't know, as I thought through that. Perhaps Ephesus, very sound orthodoxy, maybe they never did return to their first love and have a true inward passion for Christ. They had all the facts right, but where's the faith? Both are important and essential. Pergamum had some false teaching that drifted in, and that is a great danger in every church, by the way. False teaching. And perhaps they didn't cast it out. Perhaps they tolerated it, and it permeated and affected them. Thyatira dealt with sexual immorality, and perhaps they never did address it. Sardis had a lot of unregenerate members, and perhaps they didn't tighten up their membership role. I don't know. I'm speculating. Laodicea, if you remember, they, they were challenged for being lukewarm, either hot or cold. They were just somewhere in the middle, bland. Maybe they stayed that way. Christ said, I'd, I'd rather you be dead and cold than lukewarm. I don't know if the weight of persecution affected Smyrna. It finally got to them, or Philadelphia, for that matter. But somehow, all of them succumbed to the culture to a great degree. And they lost faith in Christ's victorious return. And these are some of the reasons I think churches fail even this day, and potentially how we could as well. We need to hear and heed what Christ would say. Whether it's in good times like Philadelphia and Smyrna, or in great difficult times like some of the other churches that had to deal with error and root it out. Christ will build his church, but we must follow Christ. We must obey Christ, hear what he says, and those to whom he appointed as apostles who wrote it down for us in his word. This is why Scripture alone is then the authority for our faith and practice because that authority has been given by Jesus Christ. Christ will build his church. We are required to follow him, his revealed word. That was the foundation that really drove me initially to, as I came here to establish a church that would follow Christ. And beloved, as I age, I look out at you and call you to do the same, to continue to build on that foundation so that the light would continue on. Let's read it in the text here from Matthew chapter 16 and beginning at verse 13. Remember here, Christ is coming with his disciples to Philippi, and he 
And he asks his disciples this question in verse 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? By the way, when he says Son of Man, this is a divine title. Christ knows exactly who he is, and he even puts the seed of thought in their own mind. But what he's asking for is what do the general people in the world think about Jesus Christ? And by the way, they think a lot of good things about him, and even today they do. And so he answers, well, some think you're, you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, that's an Old Testament prophet, and a great one. And then Jeremiah, another great prophet. But here he points the finger back to them, all of the followers of Christ, his disciples, as they're called. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman for, for them, <coughs> says in verse 16, notice the phrase, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ is the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, the one who was promised to come. And that Christ, that one who came, you are divine. That's what it means by saying you're the Son of the living God. There's only one God. All others are not the living God. All others are false. Christ is this God. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock, that is the rock of his confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Speaks of authority. <coughs> and whatever you abide on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I'll get to perhaps explain that a little bit later. The point is, this is Christ's authority then manifested to the church. But it is Christ's church. It's always under his care. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There, there is nothing that can stop Christ's true church. Oh, we could stop by disobeying him and following some other direction. But to follow Christ, then you are, as Paul pointed out, that blessed man. Do you see that there? Blessed. That blessed man are, are those who follow Christ. And that understanding, not just the expression that said, which is true, but to truly know this deep in the heart, that is comes about through a divine miracle of God's grace in the heart to truly recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I hope that is your testimony too. I will proclaim Christ, and I pray that you will see the glory of who he is. Let us pray. Father, we do come to you in prayer. We're thankful for the greatest gift an indescribable one, but one that is Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> We're thankful that Christ has the authority of heaven and earth and all things. I pray that we would simply follow Christ in all that we do and see great prospering and flourishing spiritually as we grow in grace and knowledge of you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Now, last week, I spent a lot of time 
emphasizing the fact that the Christian church is Christ's. It belongs to him. That, that is, those that are truly expressing Christ, Christ is the owner of it. We should never forget that. Any experience that then tr tries to interfere with the trajectory of the church, whether it's locally or collectively, all of those that would follow Christ, call on folks to stop, look, and listen to Jesus Christ. Now here I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 4. I invite you to go there with me. Ephesians chapter 4. Christ is going to then explain what the church is through his apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. He's going to explain what it, the church is all about. Drop down to verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 4. And he calls the church a body. It's just another analogy to use of the collection of God's people. He says, note here, verse 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, <coughs> who is over all and through all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now note here that, that two things. One is this, this gifting, as it ended on, verse 7. That's what grace means. This gifting of Christ is how the church began. It is how the church will continue. Hence, it's Christ's church. He gifts the church initially, and he continues to gift or grace the church, and that is how is it going to be continued. That is how the church will be reformed and restored and continue. This is the call, then, the church to, to be that light of Christ to the entire world. And they do so in unity with one another. Notice the analogy is brought up here about a body. As a body, or physical body, think of that, is, is unified, is united together, and it must be. Likewise, for a church to really be healthy, to be an expression of Christ and who he is, and under his authority, must be unified. That unity is not brought about by structures, but it's brought about through the Spirit. Notice the text. It's a divine work of God's grace that unifies us. There are so many things <coughs> that are going to bring about disunity. It is a miracle of God for different types of people in different walks of life, in different perspectives, to get together, to be agreeable with one another because of Christ. That is the singular unity which we have. Diversity is not a strength. As much as our current political uh, for imaginations come up with. You know what's our strength? Unity. 
even from a cultural sense, our, our forefathers understood that. And I think it's imprinted on, I didn't bother looking because I don't carry cash with me anymore or coins. But at least at one time in my life, you saw this little Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, out of the many, one. Okay? All right, forget the culture. I'm not trying to redeem them other than call them to come to Christ. But you know what's going to bring us together? Christ. Our individual unity with Christ then becomes the foundation for our unity with one another. We, we, we are called then individually to Christ. We have that hope, and that hope is in one Lord. There is only one. We all confess to the same Lord. You see how that brings unity in the body of Christ? Christ is the authority. I'm not the authority. I'm simply a spokesman for Christ, and hopefully I get it right. And if I get it wrong, you have his word then to, to measure what I say and see for yourselves if these things be so. Not the authority of anything. Christ is the authority. We have one Lord. That, that Lord means master. One Lord and, and one faith. There, there aren't all kinds of faiths and all kinds of beliefs. We, we can have a different understanding of some aspects of it. We've been talking about that in our ministry training class. I understand that. But there is only one faith. It's a faith in that one person, Christ, and what he said and expressed in his word. Now, I might misunderstand what he said. Right? I strive to get it right. But, but there aren't all kinds of faith. There aren't all kinds of ways to get to God. There is only one way, one truth, one life, and that's Jesus Christ. Do you know him? And, and, and that, that exclusivity is something that needs to be constantly communicated the conformity to that one and who and what he taught. And, and we said, I think, last week, that message never changes. It never changes with the time or the culture. It transcends all of them because Christ is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. You say, well, well Paul, back when he wrote, they, they thought this thing. Paul isn't writing from a cultural perspective. He's in a culture, and that helps us understand what he's saying. But what he is saying transcends the culture because what he's saying is what Christ told him. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he begins his letters quite often to the various churches. I'm here. Apostle means sent one. I'm sent. I'm sent by Christ to tell you what Christ has to say. Because Christ is in charge. He's in authority. One baptism, the baptism is not talking about our symbolic baptism. We do a baptism and follow the structure in which Christ did, where he was buried in baptism. It's a great picture. And then raised to walk in newness of life. And for those that are regenerate, that's what we experience spiritually. But symbolically, he's not talking about we have this one baptism, a symbolic representation, no matter how important that is. That baptism, the word itself, means immersion. We are immersed in Christ. If you are truly regenerate, you're in Christ, you have this faith, and you, you are immersed in Christ, and that is what will unify the church. Our unity and union 
with Jesus Christ. And there's only one, one God and one Father of all, and God has decreed all that would come to pass. But verse 7 says, Grace, however, God's unmerited favor was given. <coughs> and it accords, notice this, with what? Christ's gift. Christ gifts the church. Remember last week we touched on 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Some disunity at the church of Corinth. They were really not recognizing the unity of the leadership within the church. And some would express it this way, I'm, a, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, and others said, well, I'm of Jesus. And Paul said, well, what are we? What's Apollos? A great orator. He had great skills. What's Paul? Really just one of the hardest working godly men I could ever imagine. He says, but what are we? Great saints? No. He says, uh, we're just servants. The word servant there means slave. Slave to whom? Oh, yeah, the Lord, right? He's the master. He, Paul recognizes who he is. He's just a slave to the master. Yeah, God instrumentally used him to proclaim the gospel, and many confess Jesus Christ as Lord as well. He says, whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. That is, it is Christ who brings about that faith. It isn't the great oratory skills of Apollos or the um, diligent effort of Paul. No, it, it is Christ. He brings that about and he describes it this way. He said, I just planted. And then Apollos, he watered. You need that. But God gave the growth. And that's how a church would grow. Then, now, and always. God will use the instruments of his servants, absolutely. But ultimately, it is God, and to him be the glory. Paul considered it just a privilege to be considered a servant of God. And anecdotally and experientially, I'll tell you, I do too. It's just, it's a great privilege. I can't, I can't, sometimes I just can't believe it. I can't believe that I have an opportunity to, to proclaim Christ and people would actually want to even hear it. What a great privilege that is. Paul would go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and he said, you, you know how you ought to regard us? He says, regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. A steward is somebody who's just a caretaker of somebody else's household. The household is, is Christ. It's Christ's body. It's Christ's church. Yes, he recognizes he has a responsibility. But he says we're just servant. And, and the word there for servant is not your regular word, doulos, for servant. This particular word for servant that he uses, and I think grammatically is, is emphasizing really important, it was a word that would have been used for the lowest level servant. You know, the guy on the bottom of the ship, of a galley slave ship, that might have three levels of guys rowing. I would imagine it's pretty hot, pretty miserable. You would put your least favorite down there, if you will. 
This is a great man of God, a man who, who did great things, who God did have to keep in certain humility through his suffering, as, we'll, as he'll describe. <clears throat> but nevertheless, this is how he recognizes himself. After all of that, nope, it isn't me. It isn't my accomplishments. It's not me running around the whole world preaching the gospel and seeing people come to faith, enduring all the hardships that he had. No, it's Christ. Christ does it. And Christ is glorified. That, that's a great foundation for a church to recognize that indeed it is all of Christ's. It's all of his accomplishments. And what must, what must Paul do? <clears throat> and by the way, not just Paul, but all who follow Christ and are his servants, who confess him as Lord and serve him, is real simple. Be faithful. That's what's required of a slave. That's what's required of a steward. Just be faithful with what Christ gives you. Don't complain about, well, I would have rather done this, or rather had that, or rather be there. Well, then Christ recognizes he is the one who is Lord, and he will put into place the servants and stewards how he desires, because it's his church. It's a miracle of God's grace, by the way, for then the the deaf to hear, the blind to see, for the lame to walk, for the dead to live. This is what Christ does. And the call is just to believe, to have faith. Paul would tell his protege, Timothy, who was going to take his place, Paul knew that he was going to be leaving. He died as a martyr. They chopped his head off. And God had revealed that to him enough. We can get a clue. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. He was ready. You know, Paul would have been about my age, by the way. You know, still had a little bit of of life left, perhaps. But it was God's purposes to take him out. And he did. But Paul had someone that would stand in his place, young Timothy. And to Timothy, and if you understand the context in which this is given, such a spirited charge to a young man. And as I grow old, I see it more and more in the lives of young people. And if I had a message for you, I would would tell you to do this. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke. Do so with patience and teaching. And that's one of the things that I learned in time from the beginning to now is, yeah, we we proclaim the word and there was some reproof and rebuke, some teaching. But all of that is... Distributed in great patience. It takes time for a crop to grow. You guys in agriculture would know that. It takes time for a human being to grow physically, right? From a little one to a big one. But you know what? Before long, they do. And the crops will come in. And we just need to be patient. From the agricultural sense, just plant and water. Be faithful with what God has called us to do. 
continue to <coughs> teach and preach the word, he would tell Timothy that Timothy would be that one that would go pastor of Ephesus, by the way. And he had a great work to do. But Paul warned them in 2 Timothy 4, and I'll just read it for you. He says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So here he is saying this in the first century, right? I don't think he's talking about a time culturally in which um, all of a sudden the whole culture turns. I think he's pointing to the church you're going to be at, Timothy, because in that body, there could very well come a time when they don't want to hear sound teaching. Instead, he would say they... They, they, they have itching ears. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's what people want. And I think it's helpful to know that. That's, that's our natural disposition by the flesh and the world and the devil is to walk away from that which is sound teaching to embrace the cultural understanding of things rather than Christ's clear communication and to recognize that there will be that time that comes. And what will they wander off into? Myths. Something that is not true. So how do you combat that? Preach Christ. You just preach the word. Now, again, that doesn't sound very calculated or crafty or um, that just sounds foolish to many. I understand that. Paul did too. It's through the foolishness of preaching that people come to Christ and grow in Christ. It, it, it isn't because of our creativity. It isn't because we have a lot of interesting anecdotes or funny stories. I'm not suggesting you can't intersperse uh, those from time to time. Occasionally when I say something funny, people really laugh because I don't say it very often. But in any case, it, it might just come out as part of your personality. That's fine. It, it's not a prohibition against it. It's just that what, what, what is fundamentally what is going on for a church to be healthy, and that is to preach the word, to proclaim Christ. Because it is through the hearing of Christ that people will come to faith in Christ, Romans 10, 17. It is through the proclamation of Christ by which people will become more conformed to Christ, sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. There's no special celebrities in Christianity. Christ is the only celebrity. Paul appreciated the affirmation that he received, and he does mention that. He does even make a way for those that would follow him, particularly Timothy. He says, for the elders that rule well, for them to receive honor, 1 Timothy 5.17, and double, especially to those that work hard, and it is hard at preaching, well, why would it be hard? Because you have to get it right. You have to submit yourself to Christ. You have to set aside some of your own bias and own uh, uh, thoughts about things that come from the mind of man and look to the mind of Christ that takes hard work. But ultimately recognize that Christ has gifted the church 
not just in its existence, but in its continuation through those that would come, hear the call, and engage in the way he has equipped them to serve. That's a gift. And each one, each member is gifted by God, not just the one who is the spokesman for Christ. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me me show you in the text where it talks about Christ and his gifting. The flourishing, excuse me, the foundation and the flourishing, both, of the church is going to come about by the grace or the gifting of Jesus Christ. Look how Paul explains that to the church at Ephesus in verse 8 of chapter 4. Now this section, by the way, can be confusing, and I'll try to explain it the best I can briefly. Verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. That's the idea of the giving. Christ does this. And then Paul explains here, and most of your translations will have a parenthesis because that's what he's trying to do, explain this whole <coughs> idea of ascending and giving gifts. This part can be confusing. I, I recognize that, but I'll try to clarify it. In saying, he says, ascended, what, what, it, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? By the way, to understand what Paul's saying about this in his explanation is he's contrasting those two concepts, ascend and descend, right? He who descended is the one who then ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things, complete all things. This idea of of descending here that's mentioned And the lower parts of the earth, he's not talking about Jesus going to hell and suffering for your sin. It's the lower parts of the earth. It's the the burial into the ground. His suffering is on the cross. No more suffering was required. People that are under the wrath of God are continually under the wrath of God in hell, not because their continued suffering would actually merit anything. It's that they're all, they always merit that suffering. See? When Christ was on the cross and he died, he said, you remember? Two words. It's finished. It's done. It's complete. It's atoned for. There was nothing else to do. He's not talking about then somehow going to hell and getting more suffering. Some people teach that. It's false doctrine. That would be a myth. Christ completed his work. It was his death that accomplished it. It is finished. This descending that he's speaking of, in contrast to ascending, is Christ taking on human flesh and coming down to earth. I mean, I mean you think about it, we don't think much about it, but for, for God to take on human flesh and to, to veil his divinity and walk among us, you say, oh, well, he's bo- born in this stable, look how lowly it is. There isn't a place high enough for Christ. 
He, he could be born in the greatest palace, and that is lower than the throne in which he left. But we wouldn't perceive it, so he's born in humility to help us understand what it means for him to descend to the lower parts of the earth. God incarnate to, to walk among us, to take on that kind of humility. And to be a servant? The sovereign is going to be a servant? This, this one would live among mortal men? And then die, not for his own sin, but for others? And then to be buried? And because he's God, and he could not be corrupted, he rose again. God thinks about all this stuff in advance. In fact, he doesn't just think it in advance. He knows it in advance. This has been the plan all along. All of that is included in this concept of Jesus descending to us. That, that's what it is. This is awful descent to come, to suffer, to die. By contrast, it says then he has, this one has ascended. That is, he is now at the throne of God in the fullness of his glory. His glory was veiled in flesh, is the hymn writer right? right? Incarnate deity. But now the radiance of his glory is on full display. If you remember from Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Speaking of Christ, he upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. That's why it continues now. And it says, but after making, I'm, in Hebrew, I'm quoting for you, Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, right? that's what he did when he descended, he then ascended and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The picture is here that of his authority. That's what it means by right hand, and his glory as sovereign in on the majesty on high. His ascending refers to the display of the fullness of the glory of who he is. He would descend, condescend to us, if you will, to take on human flesh and to procure our eternal redemption. But now he's ascended on high. And so he has more people to call to come and to be a part of his bride, his church, his body, his building. A lot of analogies used for this assembly, which we call the church. And then how then would God accomplish that? By what means would he use he chose to gift men, graced men, graced them by calling them to faith, but gifting them in equipping them to be able to accomplish what Christ has called us to do. Back to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. All of that, the descending and the ascending, in, in his ascension, in his authority, he then gives gifts. 
He gives gifts, and this is how the church would continue. By the way, this Christ gift is not just for select individuals. It is for everyone that is in Christ. He has graced all of us, not only in our salvation, but think of it this way, in our service for him, for which we're all called to accomplish. Notice verse 11. He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. This is just another way to describe the church, the body of Christ, another analogy used. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, remember he talked about unity before, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's why we reject all of those, by the way. Let me break this down for you the best I can with the time that remains. Notice verse 11. The first focus is on the gifting of the leaders in the church. The the first group here, and there's two groups. First group, apostles and prophets. Apostles are the sent ones. The prophets would have functioned as spokesmen for Christ. They, They have a unique foundational position in that they proceeded immediately from Christ. Christ, in fact, authenticated what they did by gifting them in many ways, and one of them that others could see was in the miracles in which they could actually perform. They raised the dead. They healed. They did many things. Oh, nothing in comparison to what Christ did, but we call these sign gifts that they gave them. And, by the way, these, there were certain sign gifts given to the early members of the church as well. But this provided the foundation. The apostles, or sent ones, functioned by going out and preaching the gospel. You can read that in the book of Acts. It, it tracks the whole history of the early church. The prophets would have been those that then would have proclaimed Christ locally in the congregations then that were started. Remember, as Paul went out on his missionary journeys, as Luke records in Luke in the book of Acts, they didn't have all of this that you have. So, So how did they know the doctrines of Christ? And the apostles knew because they were with Christ, But it's hard to remember everything. Christ said, I would send the Holy Spirit. He's going to remind you of this. So it's a supernatural way in which they knew. And he's going to ultimately guide you in all truth. And you're going to write it down. And that way, people won't forget it. And they'll have an objective standard by which to look and measure. You know what that's called? The Word of God, right here. It's written down. Early on, not all of it was written down, so some of those that spoke or spokesmen for the church had to be right. They needed to give Christ's word, and God gifted them 
in a unique way to be able to speak the truth and have certain uh, discernment that was given uh, and uh, in, in a unique way. That's how they function. The second group, they, they, they provide the foundation then for a church. The second group mentioned here is the evangelists and, and then it says shepherds and teachers. Our ESV does a good job in trying to distinguish these. The shepherds and teachers go together. It's, it's, it's a longer title to describe the function of that particular office. It's one and the same. It's not a third, it's not a, uh, should I say, a fifth category of teachers. Shepherds are teachers. The, the shepherd idea, and, and you may have the word pastor in your translation. That's the English word we get from this word, this translated shepherd here. That is, it, it talks about the role of the spokesman for that church would no longer have that unique sign gift like a prophet where he would say, you know, I have a word from God today. <clears throat> if they don't open this up and read it, they didn't hear anything. Okay? That, that's where the word comes from. There was a time in the early church before this was written down, and it is complete and it is sufficient, before that they would have that kind of divine revelation from time to time. They didn't have it, but we don't have it here. Instead, we function as spokesmen for Christ. That's the idea of teaching. You teach what Christ taught in his word. Do it with patience. Do it with passion. And then you function in a role of shepherding uh, as guidance, if you will, encouragement. The evangelists that are mentioned here, they, that would parallel with the apostles. The evangelists we might think of today as missionaries, those who would, who would go out and work to establish what? Churches. But by the way, not some sort of parachurch ministry. Okay? That's not, that's not here. This is, that's not part of Christ's church. I'm not against all parachurch ministries. I think if for them to be effective, they ought to be submissive to a church and to a group of elders who Christ actually gifted to lead the church. There's a lot of organizations out there accomplishing a lot of great things. They would be better off submitting to a church. Is one of the reasons we have partnered with Anchored in Truth Ministries for our missions. You know why? Because they're a church. They're not some independent organization. It's a group led by elders, and other elders participate. I'm one of the ones that participate as well. They just happen to be a very large church and able to handle the administration, and they have a like-mindedness of, that we do about what the church is and what the missions are. And they have a conference that they call, by the way, a true church conference. You get the idea? True church? Hmm. Yeah. Invite you to be a part. If you can't be with us in person, you can certainly also check in online. They will broadcast that as well. There's a unique thing, obviously, of being in person. All right. So back to our text here. So here you have the leadership then given to the church. <clears throat> it isn't because they have actually... And I'm not against education by any means. I have an earned doctorate. Okay? I've worked really hard to accomplish the credentials that other people say, okay, you're, you're good on that. Master of Divinity, doctorate, it, it, it's hard work. But you, you see, none of that is required 
to, to lead the church. You know what's required? Gifting by Christ. You know what makes a difference? Gifting by Christ. I would agree that you should work very hard at the ministry. And that's what the education just proves and demonstrates because you, 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 you uh, proclaim things, you write things and so forth, and, and peers will say, oh, yes, you, you have accomplished this, fine. But uh, all I want to make is a key point here, and that is wh- wh- what is the qualification then to shepherd or, and to be a pastor of a church, gifting of Christ? And that's what you should look for, first and foremost. And, and we'll discuss ways you can see that on our Wednesdays. But, but I just want to let that as a point. So it's not that, oh, well, I'm going to go like you would, let's say you wanted to be a lawyer or a physician or whatever uh, occupation. And you say, oh, well, I need to go to school for those particular occupations, get those credentials, so then I could qualify to do it. You know what qualifies here? Christ qualifies you. That's it. And that's what you should look for. That's first and primary. All right. Sorry for that rabbit trail. But I'm trying to help those that follow. You know, I don't know. God may call someone here to get in my shoes that doesn't have the academic credentials. And the way academia is going, you probably don't want them. And if you're not sure, go ask Andy. He's still in academia. (laughs) Can I get an amen? Uh, Okay. Any case, what you really ultimately want is is a gifting of Christ. That's a unique thing. It it isn't because I have this great oratory like Apollos or this hard work like Paul. No, it's because of Christ and his calling. That's it. All right. Now to you. Notice, what's the purpose of having these evangelists go out and set up churches and then appoint elders and pastors to be in the church to engage in that? Here, and this is a key thing to understand, it is for, do you see it? Verse 12, what's their role? What's my role when I come in here every week? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church. Building it up is is how we would grow. So, So who's going to do, notice here, the work of the ministry? Well, most, many, I don't know most, I really don't, but from my impression, many places, you know what they have? They have a professional class who runs around and does the work of the ministry. No, no wonder many churches are failing because that isn't the model that Christ has established. You know who does the work of the ministry? Those that are in the body, in the church. And furthermore, Christ has gifted you to do that. You don't need a professional class. I don't mind doing stuff, and I like to do stuff. Sometimes I deliberately don't so that you will. You ever did that with your children? You know you could do something for them, and maybe you could even do it better in some respects, at least from your opinion, but you got to let them do it. And sometimes they might cut their finger preparing a dish for a meal, but that's how they grow. But further, beyond that illustration, you notice here, it is Christ then who's the one that gifts. He gifts these pastor teachers to equip these saints for the work of the ministry. How is he going to equip them? Teach them. And do it with patience, to reprove, to rebuke, as necessary, to do so with teaching. Who, who are these saints who are going to work in the ministry? Saints are just the Christians. 
The, the word pagas there, it means holy ones. You understand, if you're called in Christ, you are a saint. Read how Paul addresses just about every single letter to the churches. He says, to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Colossae, whatever church he's addressing, almost every time he says, to the holy ones. Who is that? That is you in Christ. You understand who you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have been made holy before God. You're now considered to be a saint. A saint isn't somebody who achieved all kinds of merit. A saint is someone who receives the merit of Christ. That's what makes you holy. And before God, you're holy be before God because of Christ. Everyone. And, and what do these holy ones do? What do these Christians do? What do these saints do? They do the work of the ministry. Ministry here is a word which we get deacon. And we've, in church history, we've kind of elevated that term to some degree to make it more of a technical term to talk to somebody, that, oh, well, that, they're a special servant in the church. And I recognize that, and that's a fine way to consider those that serve in that capacity as a deacon, as we do as well. But recognize that they're just being tasked with something more specific within the church body to help the church body build up. But you know who the, the deacons are in that sense, in a non-technical sense? It's you, every one of us. Look here. It, how's, the, how's the church going to continue to grow? How is it going to be built up? By these holy ones doing the work of the ministry. All saints have been gifted by Christ to actually do the work of the ministry. If you remember, I think it was Acts 6 or something in that regard. Here, the, the apostles were, were engaged in ministry and finally got overwhelmed just because of the particular needs of their community, which they have compassion. They're shepherding the people, and in their particular case, there were a whole group of folks that needed food and clothing, things like that. And they said, well, we, we need to appoint somebody to take care of that. It's kind of a proto. These weren't deacons that were appointed, by the way. These were men of God. But nevertheless, it, it kind of gives you a prototype of what a servant in the church is. He says, we need to get them to engage in that so we can spend our time in prayer and preaching. So... By the way, just to add, uh, and not, and not, I'm just trying to follow Christ. You look in his word and tell me, you know what my job description is? To pray and preach. That's what it is. Now, I have no problem coming to you and helping if you're in a dire situation, and I will. I mean, if you're sick and you're about to lose your faith because of it or any other crisis, call the elders of the church. We're coming. Okay? So, so we're there. But by the same token, I'm not going to interfere with those who actually are gifted by Christ who can serve even better than me. I can't serve each one of you in the way that Christ has gifted you to serve one another. This is how Christ's church will continue to flourish and grow. And yeah, I'm going to probably have to go one more week. So, you guys are not Puritans. 
and I don't have that much strength either. But I'll finish on this at least to get you to think about it. And, and perhaps you should ponder this particular chapter more. And what I'm saying here is, and I hope you get the point, ultimately it's, it's Christ, it's his gifting, but he gifts all of us. And we all serve in different ways. And I'll unpack that in a greater way next week. But I just want you to see this. Drop down to verse 13 if you're still in Ephesians. Until we, th- this is the process that Christ has ordained. And well, so it's through his gifting until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. You know why so many churches are divided? They, they, they don't follow the structure. You know, and, and I'm not here to crit, criticize you, and, and I'm now out of time. I'm going to make sure I don't do this. I want to compliment you for your service for Christ. I, I don't typically have to twist arms to, to get people to, to do what God has gifted them to do. It's been a great blessing to be a part of this. I'm encouraging you to continue and look for ways in which you can abound even more for your own flourishing and for the flourishing of the body of Christ because that's what it will bring about and that's the means by which God has ordained for this to occur. It says that we would attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood and what does that look like? the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we would all look like Christ. Okay? The reason he gifts the, the pastor of the church is not to be some special person that's different than everybody else, has a different calling and has a different responsibility, no doubt, but it's to be an exemplar so that you'll be Christ. We're all in it together, if you will, to follow Christ. So that, and he uses the we in verse 14, so that we, not just him, you you understand how encouraging it is for me to have your uh, honor of just praying and being here and supporting? It's we together, he says, so that we wouldn't be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And I'll finish. I don't really have a conclusion, but I'll just finish by putting this in your mind, and we'll pick it up next time. Verse 15, do you see it? Instead, what do we do? Speak the truth in love. You do truth, but in, in passion, so that we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head Christ. That's what we said at the beginning, wasn't it? Christ is the head. He's the authority from whom, and he uses the analogy of a body, from whom the whole body joined together by every joint with which it is equipped. So every little part of your body is equipped to function in a certain way so that collectively the whole human body could function when each part then is what? Working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That love is the love of Christ, that grace that he has granted us. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we would hear and heed your word. We we desire that we would grow in grace, that we would be unified by Christ 
and graciously respond in great praise for your great love, for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We typically give you a moment or two to reflect then on what is said. Respond directly to Christ the way he has spoken to you. Take a moment now. Father, thank you for your grace, your faithfulness, and your steadfast love continues even to this day. May your name be exalted in our lives individually and collectively as we join together, unified in one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and one God and Father of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. And in his name we pray, amen. I want you to stand, and Jerry has a hymn for you. What's your number? It's, it's kind of a, a different hymn, but it does speak about the love of Christ in a, in a poetic way. So perhaps you could think about that way and, and, and remember uh, the, the love of God in Christ and our true compassion for him. Think on Christ as you sing this hymn as Jerry comes to lead. Fairest Lord Jesus, number 47. Father, you have told us that we will all praise you with perfect praise someday, and you have even given us an example of this, Father. <clears throat> when we read, Then I looked and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to be slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might 
and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. We're dismissed.